Well, it's a great pleasure to be back again and to pick up on what is really uh, an impossible task, and that is to try and squeeze all of this into, into two sessions. Maybe I'll be able to come back sometime and we can talk more about this. I don't want to talk uh, as long as I did last week. I noticed from the, from the time, because so that we can have uh, plenty of, of space for, for discussion. But what I do want to do is start by a very, very quick recap of some of the things we talked about because that's really important for where we're going to go uh, today. Because what I, we talked about Martin Luther for the most part and the origins of the Reformation, so we're really thinking of the years in the 1520s, in the 1530s, uh, so the very first two decades of the Reformation following 1517 when Luther nails his 95 theses to the door in Wittenberg. But what I want to do uh, today is to move into the next generation. John Calvin was only um, uh, eight years old when Martin Luther nailed his 95 theses to the door. Uh, so he was a young person growing up in the north of France uh, from a relatively prosperous uh, family. His father had a very good uh, job working for the bishop. Uh, Calvin had an excellent education. His like Luther, Calvin's father was very ambitious for him. He wanted his son to make it in the world. And what he primarily wanted his son to be, and actually this is also true of Luther, he wanted him to be a lawyer. And so he sent him off to Paris to get the best possible education he could. And then when Calvin was in, in Paris, he moved between the study of law and theology. And so he came to, into the first contact with the new Reformation ideas of Martin Luther, which were certain. So these ideas that we talked about last week of sola scriptura, of scripture alone. Luther's central idea that the Bible, the word of God, is the only authority. It does not belong to the church in the sense that the church has sole responsibility for its interpretation. Luther believed passionately that the Bible should be available to every Christian. And that in available to every Christian meant it needed to be translated into their language. It needed to be read in their language in church worship. Increasingly, with the uh, success of the printing revolution following Gutenberg in the 1450s, so only about 60 or 70 years earlier, Bibles now could be printed in vast numbers. So there was, and Luther saw this as a divine moment. He saw the printing press as a gift of God that had now was to make the word of God available to all. And he saw himself, as we spoke about last week, as a prophet. He said, you know, he, he uses the image of Elijah. He believed that God had called him. And out of his experience as a monk, and as we talked about last week as a professor of Bible, that he had been brought to the word of God and to this discovery that that word alone carries authority. 
so Luther, you know, this is one always one of the complicated things you mentioned last week. You know, it's it's always very complicated even to our own time when people claim a prophetic role, a prophetic office. We hear it all the time. And sometimes it has been in cases that have gone dreadfully wrong. We are naturally skeptical of people who claim prophetic authority particularly when they associate themselves with figures of the Bible. So it's, it's difficult. My students always find it tricky when, when Luther talks about his prophetic calling. They say, sure, sure, sure. You know, lots of people do this. How, how is this not just sort of self-delusion? But Luther truly believed that he stood in the tradition of the biblical prophets. And he would say continuously, it's not me, Martin Luther. It's not my personality. It's not my individual character. God has not chosen me as a special person. God has bestowed upon me a prophetic office. And that's really important for thinking about Calvin as well. Because although Calvin never calls himself a prophet, he certainly believed that his role was in continuing the prophetic tradition of the Old Testament and of leading voices in the church through the history. So Calvin picks up on this idea of Luther. So we talked about the role of scripture alone as being the central foundation of the Reformation. And we talked very briefly about the idea that Luther saw at the very heart and core of the Reformation and which Calvin shares with him and, and so do the other Protestant reformers, both Lutheran and Reformed. And that is that we are justifi justified by faith alone. And that faith has nothing to do with our own merit. We cannot, by our own efforts, earn salvation. We do not, God did not look upon us as people who would be good, therefore we were chosen. God's gift, as Luther says, is entirely a free gift of grace, unmerited by us. And through the work of the Holy Spirit, we respond in faith. Now from that, and this is picking up on, on a couple of the questions last, last week, that does not mean, and this is really important for thinking about Calvin, that does not mean that, that we should not be doing good works, charitable works, the work of the church, the Christian life. This is, this is central to, to Calvin, and I'll come back to in a couple of minutes, that scripture teaches us how to live as Christians. It's so that we should be out in the world. We should be in our families and in our communities doing the work of Christ. But the distinction the reformers say is that in doing that, we do not merit our salvation. That salvation has come by God's free gift. And the good works, the in, which, which, which are through the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, flow from that free gift. So the two are together, but you have to have them in the right order. And that takes us uh, back to Calvin. Calvin, as I've said before, is of the next generation. He was about a young boy when Luther started the Reformation. He studied in Paris 
and then went on to continue actually his legal studies and became, did become, as his father wished, a lawyer. But he never became, but he never entered into the profession because in the mid 1530s, he had a conversion experience. Now, one of the things you need to know about Calvin, and which is one of the major difficulties about trying to write a biography, I think, is that Luther writes about himself all the time. He writes about everything about himself, literally. Um, Calvin does not. Calvin has, sees himself as a vessel of God's work. He's not interested in the kind of uh, sort of aspects of his self, of his personality. So Calvin almost never writes about himself. Luther writes an autobiography. Calvin only very briefly towards the latter part of his life writes an account of his life which he puts at the beginning of his commentary on Psalms, which is important because he sh that life is not about the details of what he did. That life is, a is essentially a conversion story. He tells the story of how he comes to the gospel. He doesn't tell us about any other details that fill biographies that we read today. That story that he writes about himself is a story of his conversion. And at the heart of that, of course, is the gospel. So what did Calvin see as the Bible? We talked about uh, Luther a bit last week. So how do we think of Calvin and really the origins of the Reformed tradition of thinking about the Bible? Calvin sees the Bible, and I'm not drawing you know, necessarily contrasts with Luther, but I want to talk about the things that Calvin emphasizes. Calvin emphasizes that the Bible is the primary way in which God has spoken to us. The sacraments of the church are very important. They are a means by which we are strengthened in the Holy Spirit. The Christian life in, in community are ways in which the Holy Spirit works through us. But for Calvin, the primary way in which God reveals to us is through the words of Scripture. And what, what Calvin says very clearly is without the Bible, without the Word, we would not know Christ. That we would simply have no knowledge of Christ without the Word of God. And that, for Calvin, is the heart and soul of the Word of God. And it points us in all ways towards Christ. And I would say, um, just on a kind of theological note, the heart of Calvin's theology and the heart of his major work, which is called the Institutes of the Christian Religion, is that it points to the sh both the sheer the, uh, certainty of God's promises in Christ and that it points us to what our goal, which is union with Christ. Calvin is very big on this idea that we are constantly being justified by faith, moving along the road, what he calls in theological language, 
sanctification. Justification, sanctification over the course of our lives, no matter how long or short they are. Sanctification is growing through the Spirit and being led evermore into unity with Christ. That message for Calvin is what God has revealed to us in Scripture. Scripture for Calvin does not need any justification. He takes it as the word of God. Unlike Luther, and I mentioned this last week, Luther, who had this idea that certain books of the Bible were clearer and perhaps even more important than others in revealing Christ, Calvin had a much stronger sense that the whole of the Bible, the written text that we have, is the word of God. He doesn't make those sorts of distinctions. But he does take a great deal of interest in the text of the Bible himself. Calvin was a humanist, educated person. He'd studied Latin and Greek. He studied Hebrew. He knew the ancient works of philosophy, theolo uh, not, uh, philosophy of history and literature. Like Erasmus that we mentioned last week, he believed that you had to go back to the original languages of the Old and New Testament. That that, what, because there, you could discern God's word. But then he also believed that those had to be translated, like Luther said, into the languages of the people. But to get to those translations, you had to know the original languages as well as possible. So Calvin was an extraordinarily well-educated person. And he brought his learning to the interpretation of the Bible. Now, many people have this image of Calvin that he was this sort of dictatorial ruler in the city of Geneva, where he lived most of his adult life. That he was this person who simply controlled the community. That he was this austere theologian whose only real idea was that we are predestined by God. One of the few things that some people will know about Calvin is predestination. You can talk about that if you want. But what I want to stress today was that Calvin was above all a pastor and saw himself as a pastor and saw the most important thing that he did was the interpretation of scripture. And to do this, he both wrote extensive commentaries on almost every book of the Bible, certain ones he didn't get to. Um, he never wrote on Esther, and famously he never wrote on the book of Revelation. Um, but he, he devoted himself first to the New Testament, and then later in his life to the books of the Old Testament. But Calvin was a scholar. He saw himself as bringing from the word that which could be applied to the lives of the people. Biblical interpretation for Calvin was about application. It was about bringing the word to the people. It was not, Calvin had this great hatred of what he called a vain speculation about 
thinking about things that we just cannot know the answer to. For Calvin, interpreting the scripture is about bringing the word of God into people's lives so that they can live lives in Christ led by the Holy Spirit. So Calvin preached um, often five times a week. What for us would be extremely early hours of the morning, five o'clock, because that's when people rose to go to work. He would preach, and he would preach through the whole of a book. He'd start at the beginning of Genesis. He'd start at Isaiah. He'd start at the Gospel of John and preach through the whole text what he called Lectio Continua, and others, of, and, and of course, continues to be a major practice in, our in many churches. Preached not from a lectionary, but through the whole, cur uh, through the whole uh, text, genealogies and all. Because for him, the whole of the Bible, every word of the Bible is sacred. There aren't some words that are less important than others. But at the same time, he was a historian. Calvin loved history. And he loved to think about the texts as ancient texts, which also are speaking to us today. So he would read um, um, the Hebrew of the prophets and be very clear that some prophets were much better writers than others. Famously, Isaiah was called the prince of the prophets. He was seen as the most elegant, the, be the best educated. He had been at the center. Calvin greatly admired him as a sort of example of the combination of learning and prophecy of God's word and the unity of education and the word. Other prophets, Amos, for instance, Calvin refers to as the peasant prophet. His language is ruder. It's less developed. In his commentaries on Paul, for instance, Calvin often says, you know, Paul's grasp of the language here of the Greek is not very good. He's not expressing himself with as much clarity. And one of the wonderful things that Calvin does um, and you see this throughout his commentaries. He says, what Paul really means to say here is, <laughs> read what Calvin wants him to say you sometimes, you can, but he says, he says, Paul isn't, oh, he says, Paul, Paul's Greek sometimes isn't entirely clear. So he, Calvin is a student of language. He's a student of history. He loves in his biblical commentaries to talk about the historical background of each of the texts. That he's, that he's reading. He was a great reader of history. So at the beginning of his um, commentary on the prophet Micah, Calvin gives us a really important insight to how he read and how we should read the Bible. He says, when you read Micah, you are reading both an ancient author and an author who is God's prophet to us today. So as in if we, when we read him, and those are, those are different, but they're not completely, they're, they're not separate. They're not two different things in the sense of being unreconciled with each other. 
So he says when we, when we read uh, Micah and study Micah, we learn much about the ancient Israelites. We learn a great deal about the personality of the prophet. We learn about the, the, the ways in which he writes and expresses himself. We learn a lot about the customs of the ancient world. And Calvin loves to draw from the text. And when you look at his commentaries, he loves to draw from them the historical details. He has an eye for details, and he loves that. He wants to know as much as he can about these ancient cultures. Sometimes he'll talk about their clothes. Sometimes he'll talk about their food. Sometimes he'll talk about, uh, you know, well, he will frequently talk about their worship, their liturgy. So Calvin loves this. And this is what he refers to as the historical meaning of Scripture. It's what reflects the reality of the world in which it was written. And he says, we have to remember that Micah, like the other prophets, is speaking to an ancient people. So we need to know the context in which he's speaking. Why is he talking in the way that he does? What is he speaking to? Perhaps what political events of the time is he referring to? Which kings? Which threats from beyond Israel to the people? We need to know about that context because that greatly enriches our understanding of Scripture. But, he will say, it doesn't stay there. That historical sense, which deepens our understanding, also is joined with, through the Holy Spirit, the voice of Micah to us today, which transcends the generations. Micah the prophet is speaking to ancient Israel and speaks in their language and speaks according to their customs. But Micah the prophet when we come to Scripture through the Holy, led by the Holy Spirit, is speaking to us today, speaking to us of God and God's will, sometimes of God's anger. And but it goes beyond that. For Calvin, as I said at the beginning, the center point, the core of Scripture, the word he uses is the scopus. The end of Scripture is always Christ. So he says that when we, and this isn't, the, and the distinction he does not want to make is that somehow the New Testament is about Christ and the Old is not. It's about the Israelites, the Old Covenant. Calvin takes a view very clearly and you know, commonly shared by many that Christ is present through the whole of the Bible, but in different ways. That in the Old Testament, the prophets and the patriarchs knew of the message of Christ, but did not, the time had not come. They had not, they did not express it. But they knew through the Holy Spirit of Christ, and therefore their language looks forward, anticipates the coming of Christ. So for Calvin, the Old Testament is a 
deeply Christian book. And that Christ is to be found famously, of course, in, in Isaiah, but all through, and in the prophets, but all the way through, through the, the founding of the covenant with Abraham. And what the New Testament is, of course, with the coming of Christ, is all is revealed. But for him, the two Testaments belong together. It's not just one story ends and another begins. For him, the whole of Scripture is the, is the story of Christ. And that Christ is to be read through from Genesis right through to Revelation. But what, is, what Calvin says is that Christ is present in different ways through the whole of the Bible. In the Old Testament, he is, uh, to use the language Calvin would say, he's present figuratively, and a more complex word, typological, the, the, through types. And what he means there is, and, and, and of course, the mo one of the most famous examples, of course, is David. That David is a type for Christ, a Christ figure. But also in his way is Job. And a whole series of other figures are are to be seen as pointing to in their lives and in their words to Christ. They are figures of Christ. And that's, of course, what Calvin talks about in his commentary on the Psalms, that David is speaking, but David is speaking in the words of Christ. David is a type of Christ. And that takes us to the way in which Calvin read the Bible. I talked about before the historical way. But, the lang but for Calvin, the true way of reading the Bible is what he calls the literal way. And what does he mean by literal? That's a complicated term uh, for us because literal has come to mean many different things. For some people, it means exactly the words on the page. For Calvin, if we can you know, just sort of enter into this, the literal meaning above all is the intention of the author. And the intention of the author is, is dictated by the Holy Spirit. So for Calvin, as an interpreter of the Bible, it is discerning the spirit in the words. Calvin would not say, and would feel very uncomfortable about saying, is that because it's the limitations, our human language, of saying this exactly order of words is exactly how it should be interpreted. He says you need to understand each passage in its context in thinking about the, what the words mean, about the intention of the author, all these things come together. And that reveals for him what he refers to as the literal interpretation. It's the best possible informed way we have 
of reading scripture, what, what the Spirit is saying to us. Because he's, he's concerned on the one hand that an overly uh, uh, rigorous way of focusing on the words themselves leads to a separation of the Spirit and the Word, the letters. He says the two must be together, the Spirit and the words. The words, the words without the Spirit, Calvin says, are just words. And the, and the Bible read without faith, he says, is, is nothing. Because we have been given the gift of faith, that is, brings the indwelling of the Spirit, and it is through the Spirit that the Word of God comes alive to us. We read Scripture, we hear Scripture, and through the Spirit we respond in faith. For Calvin, absolutely at the core of his understanding of Scripture is the work of the Spirit, of the Holy Spirit. The Spirit, as I say, is what allows us to understand what Scripture is saying. All faithful reading of Scripture has to be led by the Spirit. But then we just, and I'm going to sort of end here so that we can have time to talk. But then we get to the question that we touched on last week, which I think is, is crucial. The question of interpretation. Whose interpretation? is correct. Who has rightly discerned what the Spirit is saying? Luther, as I talked about briefly last week, believed that in his role as a prophet, that in many ways his interpretation was correct. And that's, that's a difficult one for us to, to wrestle with. But Luther believed that what distinguished him from his opponents was that his office as a prophet gave him an authority. Calvin formulates it very differently because he belongs to a, a later generation, a generation when the churches are now becoming established. Calvin believes very powerfully in the office of a pastor. He has a very high view of the role of pastors. Pastors should be properly educated. They should be educated to learn the languages of Scripture. They should be taught doctrine, they should be taught how to preach, but they are, he does, not say, he does not want to say that they are like the Catholic priests, they are not given some indelible mark which separates them from the laity. What they are given is to be educated and led by the Spirit to preach to the people. And Calvin believes that if pastors are educated if they are of the Spirit and preach the Word of God and administer the sacraments, they are the ones that through God, through whom God works to bring the Word to the people. The primary function of the pastor for Calvin is as the interpreter of Scripture to the people. Now, just sort of, I want to just end on this because Calvin sees the, the pastorate in this very high role, which of course remains a tradition, certainly in the Reformed churches. But Calvin divides the ministry into four parts. 
doctors who are the ones who are to be educators, pastors who are to be preachers, elders who are to look after, the, the help to, to run the church and to oversee the life of the community, and deacons who are committed to what we would call um, pastoral ministry, care of the poor, care of the sick, and dying. But that, that, so the pastorate has these different elements to it, but all are held together by a commitment to the word. But the pastors themselves, the preachers, have the particular responsibility of preaching the word to the God, to, uh, preaching the word of God to the people. And when they depart from that, they are no longer true pastors. And Calvin is very clear about that. So Calvin has, following Luther, an extremely high view of the word of God as the sole authority within the church. The church does not control the word of God. He has a clear sense of how scripture should be interpreted. And he has a clear sense that scripture has revealed all that we need to know. That God has revealed everything that we need to know for our salvation. There's nothing hidden. It's all there. Beyond that, we do not need to know. There are other questions, but they are beyond us. As I say, Calvin calls that vain speculation. All we need to know is in the word. And the last thing I'm going to say is the key term that Calvin uses is that God accommodates himself to us. God has spoken to us in scripture through his chosen authors, dictated by the Holy Spirit in a language that we can understand. So God has condescended to speak in our language. And that's why it's incumbent on us and on the church that the word should reach every single person. So I'm going to end it there so we can have some uh, time for uh, conversation. But